Dr. Ian McGilchrist is a psychiatrist, neuroscience researcher, philosopher, and literary scholar. He is a Quantum Fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, an Associate Fellow of Green Templeton College, Oxford, a Fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and former consultant psychiatrist and clinical director at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospital, London. He's a research fellow in neuroimaging at Johns Hopkins Hospital and a fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Stellenbosch. He's the author of a number of books, including The Matter with Things and The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. Dr. Ian McGilchrist, welcome to The Creative Process. Oh, thank you very much, Mia. Looking forward to talking. Well, we're very fascinated with the subject of your new book, The Matter with Things. Um, just to give us a bit of an entry into this, you know, how do the two perceptions of reality through the right and left hemispheres influence our experience of the world and how we define truth? Those are good big questions. Um, the first thing I probably ought to say is that if you think you know anything about the difference between the two brain hemispheres, unless you've been reading my work, please forget it, <laughs> because most of it will not be true. Um, so one of the first things I have to get over is that it's an unpopular topic because it's been hijacked by pop psychology, but I've actually spent something like three decades researching it, and it's a, a very different story from the one that you may be familiar with. Um, I'm very concerned about the state of the world as it is. I expect we all are, particularly uh, obvious things like the destruction of the natural world, uh, the breakdown of old um, ways of life in, in parts of the world where modernity hasn't entirely impinged yet, but it's having a negative impact, and indeed destructive forces in our own society. So I wanted to turn the spotlight on the way in which we think about what a human being is. I feel that we've really not got the foggiest idea any longer about who we are and what we're doing here. There's a sort of story that it's all pointless, meaningless. It's a random world in which bits of matter just collide with other bits of matter and then you die. I don't think this is a satisfactory way to think about it at all, but it is the way that your left hemisphere would tell the story. And without going into any great detail, effectively the two hemispheres have, for evolutionary reasons, developed a a quite different way of paying attention to the world. The left hemisphere pays a very narrowly focused, targeted beam of attention to a detail. And it moves from detail to detail that it's already rather interested in. It's been alerted by the right hemisphere that there's something interesting there, and it goes, ah, I latch onto that. And the right hemisphere, meanwhile, is giving a different kind of attention, which is broad, open, receptive, without preconceptions about what it might find. And this results in two different kinds of worlds coming to attention. We're not normally aware of the two being different because uh, in order that we're able to get on with our lives, evolution is uh, taking care of that. You're not aware that you're switching between the hemispheres, but at a very fast rate, you are taking in these two pictures that are not strictly speaking compatible and attempting to combine them. The left hemisphere sees a world made up of fragments. It sees the bits as decontextualized. It sees them as um, 
atomized, as, as, as separate from everything else. It also sees them as frozen by this intense stare which captures it, as we say. It sees a world in which effectively things are inanimate and in which they are more abstract and representational than actual and concrete and embodied connected to us in the way that the right hemisphere sees it. So the right hemisphere's picture is of a world in which everything is ultimately connected to everything else, that you can't understand something without taking in the context, that much meaning is implicit. The left hemisphere really understands explicit meaning. So everything like tone of voice, irony, sarcasm, metaphor, poetry, myth, narrative, all that's really communicative about the deep meaning of life is not really available to the left hemisphere. It relies on the right hemisphere for that. So you can see there are two quite different worlds here. One is animate, constantly moving, flowing, changing, and the other is static, inanimate, fragmented, meaningless and um, passive. So this is a, a very different kind of vision of the world. So when I started this book, I wanted to ask the question, who are we? And what can we take to be real? How do we know what to rely on as relatively true? There isn't one big absolute truth, of course, but some things must be truer than others. Otherwise, we couldn't we couldn't act, we couldn't speak, we wouldn't be able to do anything at all unless we believed that some things were truer than others. How are we to know that if two halves of our brain are giving quite different versions of reality to us? And one of the first things I do in the book is, it takes about 400 pages, but I go through all the ways in which we can gather information about the world through attention, through perception, through judgments formed on perception, through emotional and social intelligence, through our cognitive intelligence, and through our creative faculties. This is how we understand the world. And I show that in each case, the right hemisphere has a more veridical, a, a truer version of reality. The left hemisphere's version is like that of a map. It's very useful, don't get me wrong. It's not that there's something bad about the left hemisphere. It's often very handy to have a map. But with a map, you never imagine you're living in the map. You only use it to refer to the real world. The problem at the moment is we've taken the map, our theory, our abstract idea about life, to be the reality, which explains why so often we behave without any understanding of the consequences of what we're doing or where these things come from and what they're likely to do to us. So that's what I would say in laying it out fairly simply, Mia. Fairly simply, but it does bear going into some detail because after all, it's not just how our mind works. It's what we value. There's a spiritual element, a creative element. I mean, it's just, exactly. you know, what gives our lives meaning. And so it's interesting because as you outline it, I, I feel like there's this intuitive element that may reside more in the, the right hemisphere and there's this functional capacity or or maybe a kind of autistic or uh, reductionist perception that would reside in the left that also has it, its benefits as well yes so i'm wondering in this period of technophilia where we look to technology or some look to technology and exponential growth and progress as the answer to mankind's problems. What are your mm. thoughts in your research and just really taking in how we take in the world? What are your thoughts on AI, machine learning, super intelligence, 
you know, how might we inject right hemisphere intelligence into our technology to create limitations and controls? Well, <laughs> um, as you say, values are very important. What is it that we value? And I believe that we've inverted the pyramid of values, which leads from mere utility and uh, mere satisfaction in a simple way of our desires. We've put that ahead of things like goodness, beauty, truth, courage, magnanimity, generosity. These are important values, but they've been pushed down in favour of whatever is useful to us and can add to our supposed pleasure, although actually it doesn't usually work out that way because pleasure is not something you get by deciding this will give me pleasure and going for it. Um, it usually disappoints if you do that because happiness comes as a byproduct of other things in which you forget yourself rather than strive for your own satisfaction. The trouble with the mindset behind AI is that it's often driven by a desire for greater utility. And that's fine in a way, but giving us power to use the world, uh, which is really what that means, is only as good as the wisdom of the people who are using it. If they're using it without any wisdom, then they will help destroy us and destroy the world. I fear that without having a much better and deeper grounded understanding of the things you were mentioning, the spiritual realm of imagination, which is not the same as fantasy, by the way. Fantasy, yes, takes us away from reality, perhaps, but imagination is the only way in which we can feel our way into the reality of things. We need to be, more than anything, we need to refocus where we're going and why we're doing it. And that might actually mean foregoing certain developments in AI, because they're not all innocent. If you create the means whereby we can effectively brainwash, enslave, and degrade and dehumanize human beings in the interests of those who have power and money. That is not a morally neutral act. That has already been the source of something that may well turn out to be destructive and yes, even evil. So I think there's a huge weight of moral duty on people who are in this world we're going somewhere that we don't know what the consequences will be and we ought to be circumspect and that means doubting questioning and at the moment there's an enormous amount of enthusiasm for certain developments and it's not permitted to raise a voice of question and doubt but as hannah arendt a great philosopher of the 20th century uh, she fled from nazi germany because of the persecution of jews she pointed out, when you stop being able to doubt things, you've embarked on a tyranny. Completely. And, you know, you spoke there about the importance of the arts and humanities, and they really give, which is something I really want to go into, maybe into more depth a bit later, but they've been a bit neglected in the educational realm recently. But how you say it's mm, not mm. fantasy. I, I mean, I find it incredibly instructive, and you must as well, you know, watching children 
whose way of communicating is kind of like still metaphorical. The separation of reality and fantasy is, is not yet there. Or also watching children and animals where the physical and the mental isn't separated. It's very connected. And, and I feel that the arts help with this reconnection of the, what we call, we've been calling mm. the mind-body problem. Yes, yes. Well, that was the, the question of the mind-body problem was what precipitated my departure from teaching the humanities to learning medicine and becoming a, a, a physician and finally a psychiatrist. And I think it's essential that we understand that we are embodied beings. Our knowledge is embodied. It's often drawn out of many subtle strands that are implicit, intuitive, correctly driven by feeling and emotion. These are not negative things. These are what help us to make wise decisions. Without them, we become machine-like in the worst possible sense of that word. So all that is very important. And I don't know much about the world of AI myself, but let me give you an analogy that I think is important. One can see medicine, the business of trying to heal people and reduce their suffering and reorientate them in life. One can see that as something very utilitarian as the tuning of a machine but in fact as much as we see human beings as machines we've misunderstood what we're dealing with and some of the aspects of modern medicine that are least attractive are the ways in which the human has been lost and the technical overemphasized as much good is done by the relationship between a physician or of course a psychiatrist and a patient as much as to do with that relationship as other factors of course you have to know what you're talking about that's why you spend years and years and years and years learning in order to be able to be a doctor but you also have to be able to exercise that with humanity and i i had a special perspective on this coming from a background in training in philosophy and the arts, because when I entered medical school, I was at a handicap that I was 10 years older than everyone else. But I had the great advantage, along with one or two other so-called mature students, that we'd actually been trained to think about many other aspects that make life worth living. And in doing that, I think those colleagues of mine that entered medicine late, and I have been able to find a path in medicine which is less reductionist, less purely technically minded. But when I talk to some of my colleagues and suggest that the body and the brain are not just machines, they seem surprised. They say, well, well what else are they then? Um, and I sort of think, gosh, should anybody be allowed to study medicine unless they've already done several years in the humanities. Nobody should be let loose on people until they know something about people, which is what the humanities are about. That's why they're called humanities. <laughs> so Dr. McGilchrist, changing topics a little bit, how would you define nature and do you think humans are natural? Those are very, very good questions, I must say. Like most really important things, like the idea of God or the soul or, or anything of this kind, very hard to define. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not real. That's a mistake that the left hemisphere makes. That if you can't define it in a few words, then it doesn't exist. I'm really letting myself off the hook here slightly. <laughs> I think the answer would have to be quite a long one. But I think it's something that we don't understand, that is bigger than ourselves, that calls to us, 
that we come out of and eventually return to and can't live without the connection to that that history of species um, we're animals after all of human history of the body and mind that make us as much what we are as any kind of propositional calculus that our brain can carry out. So I think it's something that, in which we are grounded, which gives life meaning and orientation. And research shows that when people are cut off from nature in the sense of the natural world, happiness, their physical health deteriorates. And that reconnection with nature, and I mean that just in the simple sense that most people would think of it, being in a natural setting and spending time being open to what nature says to us, what nature calls to us with, um, improves uh, their happiness and well-being. So it's good for mental and physical health. So I think it's very important. So I've heard you speak before about nature as something that's harmonized rather than something that's sort of scientific and predictable. So I was wondering if you could answer the question, what's the difference between something that's unnatural and something that's unharmonized in the sense that you were yes. talking about? Well, you're right to bring me back to the idea of what is unnatural. There are two ways of thinking about that. One is that a lot of what we value is ways in which we have departed from nature. And medicine might be, to some people, taken as an example of that, that we are no longer vulnerable to certain things that nature would inflict on us. We can, to an extent, mitigate some of the ills which nature might bestow on us. And so that's true. But is that unnatural? And after all, human beings are a product of nature as much as anything else. And it's as natural for us to have thoughts and desires and plans, which might include ways of treating people, as anything else. So I don't see the ways in which we think about and respond to nature as themselves unnatural. But I think they go wrong when they are unharmonized in, in the phrase that you bring up. That's an interesting idea, which again is very difficult to quickly deal with. The first thing to get out of the way is that harmony doesn't mean the same. Harmony doesn't mean all going in the same direction or doing the same thing. In fact, harmony depends on there being plurality. When we talk about sounds harmonizing, it's not that they make unison, they're not just one note, they are a number of notes, but notes that know how to go together, if you like, in order to produce something beautiful. And the, you may, if you've heard me speak before, have heard me talk about Heraclitus, an early Greek philosopher, who thought this concept of harmony was very important, and he saw that it was generated by the coming together of opposites. So it's very much not a silencing of points of view that disagree. It's not just having one way of doing things. It's welcoming different strands, but allowing them to flourish together and make something more creative and powerful. And the image he gives is that of the string of a lyre, the Greek uh, musical instrument, or the string of a bow that can fire an arrow, that it's 
power to fire the arrow, its power to allow music to come forth, come forth, comes from being pulled in opposite directions. So it's important that there is this plurality, but it's not senseless plurality. It's not the breaking up of a whole into chaotic fragments. It is precisely the harmonizing of these elements that produces something bigger and better than was there before the harmony was able to show itself. So going back to the question about perfection and imperfection, and mm. because of this is something you discussed about the resistance of things, how we kind of need an imperfection so that we can balance it. Yes, well, we certainly need a degree of resistance. And we think in the West of resistance as something negative, but it's actually part of the creative process. And without resistance, nothing can, new can come into being. So the very things that we think of as perhaps obstructing or negating are the very things that will lead to something new and greater. So we need to get over this idea. For example, we're only able to move in space because there is friction. Friction is what? Friction is a force that stops you moving. But without a degree of friction, you can't actually move because you wouldn't have anything to move in relation to. So perfection is itself an imperfection. And in a number of traditions, this is memorialized by the idea that uh, when you create something, there should be deliberately some imperfection in it. So in oriental rug making, there is the concept of the imperfect stitch. And I was taught that in traditional building of houses in, in China, it was always the custom to leave three tiles off so that it was not in competition with heaven because heaven itself was not perfect. Yes, and I love that. And I think in Japanese, there's a kintsugi. And I think that we've often been told that beauty is symmetry, but I feel that perfectly symmetrical things are hard to look at, like the kind of computer-generated faces. I, I can't look at them. They have an uncanniness. And um, you open up there a subject which could well be that of a whole other <laughs> conversation, but um, and too big to go into now. But as you know, one of the drifts of my book is that asymmetry is more important, more creative and more profound than symmetry itself. And I'll be talking at the British Library in London in May with Dr. Dennis Noble and Benedict Rattigan about this business of the importance of symmetry and asymmetry. What I think is a key thing here is that we need the asymmetry of symmetry and asymmetry. We don't just need asymmetry, and we certainly don't just need symmetry, but we need the asymmetry of symmetry and asymmetry together. And this is like something that may sound like a riddle, but I think is completely logical. The left hemisphere thinks that we must fix down on one thing, a black and white decision, and either or must be made. But it's very important that we also take into account the right hemisphere's view that we can have both and that's why the right hemisphere can take in the left hemisphere's vision without destroying it, because it can become part of a both and. So what we need is, yes, the either or, but we need the both and as well. We need both either or and both and. We don't need to be in the situation where you have to choose either either or or both and. 
to tell a, an amusing joke, which I heard from the chief rabbi, uh, now sadly dead, Jonathan Sachs. And it's a story that goes like this. A devout man is reading the Talmud and he finds that a famous rabbi, famous for his wisdom, says that one should do a certain thing. And then he reads on further in the Talmud and he finds that a different rabbi, who's just as venerated, said exactly the opposite. So he thinks, oh my goodness, what am I to do? So he prays to God and he says, which of them is right? And God replies, both of them are right. And then in exasperation, he says, but how can they both be right? And God replies, all three of you are right. <laughs> oh, it, it, well, it's true. It's, it's, it's so important. I think it's very important and humbling also to recognize there maybe on some statistical things, there are truths, uh, one truth, but in most things, there's, there's a two yeah. sides. Yes, like, I mean, it's, it's it's true, it's a fact um, that I had milk in my coffee this morning, and it's no good saying that equally I didn't. But as Niels Bohr said, trivial truths have this uh, uh, simple, straightforward structure. But all the really profound and complex truths carry with them the fact that their opposite is also a profound truth. Same. Yes, and we need it not to have stasis. So thank you again for illuminating the complexity. Uh, it's not a black and white world, uh, if only it were. It's so fascinating. I'm wondering, you were speaking about how we are not disembodied, you know, thinking machines. Mm. And I've heard mm. this, I mean, I myself, I'm a painter, I, I dance, I write. Mm. So, and many mm. artists have said this to me. They say that they think through their body. And they really, they mean that they think through their body. For instance, I, I recently interviewed mm. a uh, sculptor who he, he lost uh, some of his fingers and, and mm. he's, he's been going through the phantom limb experience. And mm. I'm wondering in your research, as much, much as it is possible to know, because you have written about when um, people experience stroke or brain damage and how something is lost, to what extent might it be possible that we could think through our bodies is there a, are there some kind of therapeutic approaches where consciousness doesn't just have to take place in the brain or is that an illusion you know you're talking about some of these extreme am amnesia cases like concert pianists who mm. can still perform yes yes well you, you're absolutely right to emphasize that we do think not just as it were in the brain, but with our whole embodied being contributing to that. There are interestingly more neurons in the human gut than there are in the brain of a dog. And a dog is not by any means a simple animal. So, and you can pretty much bet your bottom dollar that they're not just there in order to aid peristalsis of the gut. They are reporting as it were, and the heart also reports to the brain and receives from the brain. So our bodies are in dialogue with the brain. And we don't really know where consciousness is. We sort of imagine it somewhere in the head, but there's no real reason to suppose that. It's just that we identify it with our sight and we therefore think it must be somewhere up there behind our eyes. But it's something that takes in the whole of us and to which the whole of us contributes. So absolutely, when you think of intuition, this can be something that can guide a military leader, a chess player, a surgeon. It can be what makes 
uh, in the, the amount of things I talk about, uh, because these people actually approached me, about how these motorcyclists who are taking split-second decisions at over 200 miles an hour, how they do this and what their relationship between their body and their mind is like. And also people who, uh, a man who just, uh, not just, but is a tipster of horses and can make decisions about which horse is going to win the race by about a tenth of a second without calculating at all. So, in fact, when he calculates, he gets it wrong. And this is true of many things, that when you achieve true expertise, you no longer not only no longer need to think about it, but must not be thinking about it because the thinking will be too crude. So excellence has to do with things being, decisions being made outside of consciousness, which is why we sometimes say things like, well, this is a difficult decision, but I'm going to sleep on it. I mean, that's not just a figure of speech. It is true that the unconscious mind can help resolve things at a very high level. So yes, there are healing techniques that depend very much on the body and not on articulation of words. I looked after people, sometimes very articulate, who were perhaps lawyers or you know um, academics who 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 had mental problems, and it, they they sometimes be surprised that I would not advise them to be having um, therapies that were based on linguistic matters because they were so used to uh, formulating things in a way that stopped them from really feeling and thinking about them, that actually this only perpetuated the problem. And I would get them to do drama therapy or art therapy, which often involves sculpting things. And this short-circuited that linguistic loop and allowed them to make contact with something. And they'd often come back saying, it's extraordinary, I don't know what happened. I didn't think I knew anything about this, but suddenly I was doing something and tears welled up. And you know, since then I feel much more in touch with my, my feelings and I'm beginning to feel some kind of healing taking place. So it's a very, very important point that you make. Um, certainly as a, as a sculptor or as a dancer, again, you mustn't be thinking about it. When, you, when you're very, in the very first steps, then you have to consciously think about it. But at that stage, you're not a good dancer, you're not a good sculptor. It's only later when you're able to relegate that to the unconscious mind that you become truly great and creative. It's very fascinating, the incidence of synesthesia, which is often associated with attaining higher levels in an art form. And, and poets will talk about that kind of thing you're talking about where they write the music first and the music makes sense, but then they'll bring the sense in. But that's not what they're aiming for first. It's a, it's a different logic. It's the logic of beauty or rhythm. Exactly. And wonderful that you, you, you mentioned beauty there, of course, um, naturally. But I talk a lot about the creative process in this book because it's only really about the two hemisphere thing to begin with. But I move on to the various ways in which we can come to know things about the world. But a lot of it is to do with imagination. And this is true of scientists and it's true of mathematicians as much as it is of artists. Um, I give many, many examples of decisions or remarkable breakthroughs in science or in mathematics that were made at the time on the basis that something that the person was not looking for came to them and it had intuitive rightness. It seemed beautiful. And not always has this been right, but in very, very much the large majority of cases has this proved to be 
completely right, and at the time they didn't know why. But months later, having done some more pedestrian investigation into the idea, they saw, yes, they could justify it in, in linguistic terms. A lovely idea. Dr. McGilchrist, what do you think the purpose of science is? This is maybe another uh, impossible question. Right. Your questions are fantastic, Mike, I, I, <laughs> and they're very difficult, which is the sign of a good question. What is a scientist? Well, I think a good scientist, I mean, the word is a new one, actually. Um, this concept of science, in this sense, only cropped up in the 1830s, although science is as old as humanity, really, and has certainly been going on for a few thousand years. Science is a desire to understand more of the awe-inspiring nature of what one sees around one and what puts questions to one. How does this happen? Why does this happen? And in order to answer those questions well, one has to be maximally open to possibilities. That means that when science becomes dogmatic, or the left hemisphere schema, the abstract map of what science is and where it goes, dominates, then science becomes unscientific. I'm a great believer in science. I've benefited from science both in my life, of course, and in my work. I'm reliant on it and I have a, the greatest of respect for it. But I think there are worrying strands in modern science, and there have been in the past, um, it's something one always has to guard against, which is a fossilization, a belief that certain thoughts must not be thought and that only certain paths may be followed. That is when things start to become impoverished, discoveries become fewer, the break breakthroughs and insights become less powerful. I think it's important for us to ask these questions about the purpose of science. And of course, because we've been talking a little bit about the future, this concept of what is progress, just because we can do it, should we do it? Is there an argument for yeah. deceleration? And because we're talking a little bit about memory and when certain parts of the brain is damaged or whether it's the left or the right hemisphere, at what point do we lose? What, what is our, our humanity? You know, are we the stories we tell ourselves? Are we more than our own thoughts? And when we lose that capacity, what remains? Well, is your question about memory specifically or? I'm not sure. I'm just interested in yeah, what makes us human? I feel like you've studied a lot what happens to like perfectly healthy functioning minds and where there's damage, whether to the, the right or the left hemisphere, when we lose our mm. humanity. So, you know, what are your thoughts about that? And what, what's the point in which we lose too much and we just are no longer what we define as ourselves? Well, certainly this is, this is a day for very, very good questions. I'd be very loath to say that when people are unfortunate enough to sustain an injury or an illness deficit to the brain that they lose their humanity, I think that's a fairly appalling idea. Um, we should never lose sight of the fact that they are human beings, but their way of seeing things may be different from the way that we normally conceive a human being as seeing things. 
And that's not to say that every way of seeing things is equally valid. I'm not producing a rather reductive democracy of ways of seeing the world. Some are much richer than others. And it's certainly true that illness or injury can take away some of the beauty and complexity of the world for, for the sufferer. But I think that losing one's humanity would involve becoming, and I've never known anyone actually do this, but becoming only mechanical in the way that they think. Of course, it is true that when people are severely autistic or have a certain kind of schizophrenia, they can lose a great deal of what we think makes a human being in terms of the emotional and intuitive aspects. But that would be to grossly simplify. They're not machine-like at all and indeed often have rich, although non-apparent, emotional lives that can well up and need to be born in mind. So there's a big difference between the sort of, in my view, very worrying concept of a cyborg, a sort of human that's half a zombie, basically, driven by something mechanical, and anything that can happen to a human being through the way of illness. I was just thinking about sometimes when we have this technical capacity, like of that so some well-known cases of people with extreme amnesia. Mm. And yet it's mm. very strange because sometimes people have endured injuries where it's actually illuminated things for them, where they have a kind of vision or through the mixing, and maybe this is to do with mm. kind of shaking up or greater connections through the hemispheres, that they freeze up the passages. Yes. Well, you're quite right that, I mean, the other side of having an illness is that sometimes, or, or an unusual, atypical brain development, neurodevelopmentally unusual form of, of cognition, uh, this can lead to capacities that um, are rare and unusual. So we often see a mixture of unusual deficits with unusual strengths. Uh, and that's important to bear in mind as well when one's talking about, you know, the, the con concept of losing humanity. I think it's more a concept of exploring what is possible in a, a human being because sometimes some of the things that we very much don't want to lose, and it wouldn't be good if we did lose them, nonetheless, there is a price paid for them. And, you know, there's a trade-off. So um, being able to think in certain ways extremely fluidly may involve not being able to think in certain other ways for which there would be a human cost. So I think all those things have got to be borne in mind. Um, and the, I was thinking while you were saying about people who sometimes uh, have profound amnesia, and uh, you, you may be thinking of extraordinary cases of people who've had herpes simplex encephalitis and it's destroyed the memory centres in both the temporal lobes so that there isn't really a, a, a memory centre left. And these people are um, incapable of remembering something that happened only a minute ago. But they don't lose their, their warmth of reaction to the world. I, I think of the patient, I can't remember his name now, but he his wife is there and he turns away and then he talks about something and then he turns again and says darling you're here and he'd forgotten that only 45 seconds ago she was there in the room but he's absolutely not a machine he's a he's an experiencing very human being 
Yes, literally, he is living in the moment, which is something that we others of us forget. Um, which is which is nice to 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 meet your your wife or your life partner again, as though over almost the first time. <laughs> That's something we have to hold on to, and it it's interesting to think about how much the imagination is also relative to the the empty spaces are important the silences are important like not knowing the full picture so that we can fill it in with what we imagine it might be oh absolutely and uh, i don't know if you've had time humanly to read through towards the end of my book but in the last part i'm talking about you know what we can know about things about the cosmos and i talk about the nature of time and and space and matter and consciousness but also about values such as beauty goodness and truth and about the sense of the sacred and one of the themes is that is the richness of what we think of as negative but in other cultures has been understood as being part of what is positive so we have this one-sided view that only by making and doing and thinking and being active are we actually fulfilling ourselves where a lot of the time what we're doing is filling up space with the repetition of things that we already know and crowding out the capacity to welcome something that is a new conception so wise people have often cultivated silence and cultivated long periods of reflection and meditation and that is not just um, a completely passive state it is what if you need to call it passivity you'd have to call active passivity it's a it's an actively receptive openness in which you are deliberately not allowing what in the tradition of uh, Buddhist meditation is called monkey mind, which is effectively the left hemisphere verbalizing all the time about what it's seeing. It's switching that off and therefore allowing deeper, if you like, deeper lying, lower lying, more unconscious aspects of ourselves, which are extremely rich, to do some of the knowing and the reception of things that would otherwise be blotted out. Don't forget that most of what we are is unconscious. It's estimated that over 99% of all our cognition is not conscious. I, I give the metaphor of a, of a spotlight on a stage moving around. It can only spotlight a little bit of the stage, but the rest of the stage is still there when it's not being spotlit. <laughs> and it's, that's where a lot of the action in the case of the human mind is taking place. We do very complex things like solve logical problems, ethical problems, fall in love, appreciate art, decide on a course of action, while we're not actually thinking about it explicitly at all. Dr. McGilchrist is one of the most inspirational figures I've had the honor to come across. It's rare in an era of materialist and Darwinistic philosophies to hear a voice arguing for the intrinsic meaning in ourselves and in the world around us. With our seemingly large wealth of knowledge, it's easy to get convinced that our perceptions of the world are true because they're backed on science. As Dr. McGilchrist explains, while it's necessary to hold some things as truer than others, it's also necessary to maintain a level of awe-inspired humility. There are few things as awe-inspiring than to meet someone who is truly able to maintain that in themselves. Dr. McGilchrist is one of those people. There's something about meeting someone and communicating with them that you can really tell whether or not they believe the things that they say. Furthermore, when they do believe what they say, they can transmit a certain feeling to you that's irreplicable. 
After having the honor to speak with him for even an hour, I was left feeling hope and curiosity about the world. Every tree a spectacle, and every word a mystery. To me, that's what was most inspiring about this podcast. What I find most interesting about his work is the combination of philosophy with biology. From my perspective, I could read his book as both a philosophical struggle between two viewpoints on life, or as a scientific analysis of the two brain hemispheres. It made me wonder how much of a connection there is between our biology and our philosophies. If our philosophies on life changes the way our brain functions, then how far can we go with that? Is there an optimal philosophy of life that fits our biology most appropriately? Can science really bring meaning into life, or are those two processes exclusive? These are the questions that came into my mind when I was reading Dr. Michael book and listening to his talk. I don't know if anyone has any answers to those questions, or if they can be answered. But if they can, I think the inquiries he's making would lead to those answers. In the following portion of the podcast, Dr. Migokris explains the necessity of awe in the scientific pursuit, the issues with our educational system, and what it is that makes us human. And now, back to the podcast. So I'm about to graduate, and me and a bunch of my friends are as well. And there's a huge sense of anxiety around that because we're exiting something that had like a predetermined end point. You know, when you're in school, there's, you're going to graduate and that's known that you're going to get there. And now we have no idea what the end point is going to be after college. And I think that fits really well with your model of the left hemisphere versus the right hemisphere, because the left hemisphere has that map of everything and says, okay, we know where we're going to go and we know what the end point is going to be. So what advice would you um, have for someone like me that's about to graduate? (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Well, uh, I think as one gets older, one gets more circumspect about giving advice. But certainly, I think you ought to relax a bit about that sense of, you know, we've got to make a decision. I think it's unfortunate if you're put in uh, a position where you feel you have to, and it might even ultimately be better to step aside from the the known route and process and do something else that attracts you for a while. Um, I've often thought, actually, that that universities ought not really to be open to people right after school, that they ought to actually have to engage with a general life for a few years before they actually make a decision. Yes, what I want to do is go to a university and really study this certain thing. Because if you're going to carry on graduate studies, they're going to become more minutely particular and specialized. And so that breadth is very important. Otherwise, one loses sight of why one's doing things. So what are your thoughts, Mike, about what you might do after graduating? I mean, I, I have no idea right now. I'm thinking about graduate school, probably in archaeology or ecology, but I don't know. It's just, it's, it's nerve wracking because it, it's the first time that you really have to figure out what you want to do and set a course. So I think that says something very fascinating about our civilization, because of course, one should be unsure about where one's going in life and what it entails from the very word go. <laughs> There's something very artificial about the cocoon in which we surround uh, people as they grow up with certainties that this is what one does, this is what one achieves, this is the path. And I'm not saying that there should be no structure at all, but perhaps it's too determined in that way. And one of the things that um, differentiates the lives we now live from those of only a few hundred years ago, where such people were, were, were surrounded by death 
from the word go, from their childhood on. They'd often have siblings that died and, and the uncertainties of life and the, the, the need to balance things in what one was going to achieve would have been much greater than now where the, the, the map, as the left hemisphere map, has, has become the reality and on the map everything is clear and how it relates and so on, the roots are all there. But really, I mean roots, the ways you go to things which are not necessarily clear at all. I, I was fortunate that I was able to change my mind about things. And I, at, at school I started off specialising in science and then I changed and specialised in Latin and Greek and ancient history. And then I went to university and basically was a philosopher looking at literature. And then the philosophy led me to medicine. And, you know, so being able to move about and not being frightened to do so seems to me a rather good thing. And you, you strike me as somebody who's on very brief acquaintance, who's got a very inquiring mind and imagination. And so I hope that you will have that. Life will gift you the ability to, to change course. Because in the end, it turns out to be important. I mean, if I'd looked at my life 15 years ago, I thought, I don't know why I made all these changes. But actually, in a sense, when I look, look at where it's been leading, the books that I've written depended on my doing all the various things I've done. Yes, and I couldn't think that's a, a wonderful argument for really, I think, what should be the purposes of universities, which is a universal education, what more and more they become pre-professional schools. Um, yeah, and so I'd love to yes. know, because we're an educational initiative, and we're trying to open people's minds, the anxieties that we hear from students as well. I think the specialization is important. You should, you know how to do a few things well. I don't think just one thing, a few things well. But also the specialization, I think, has created different problems because, as you mentioned, we have this um, environmental crisis and the idea of a circular economy. People don't know how things work together. They're so specialized. And so that, that's a real dilemma, I, I feel. So how do we, you know, reintroduce the, the humanistic, the universal education into our universities, into our elementary schools? Uh, how do we make learning fun and not a pressure and help us all understand how it all works together? Well, you yourself referred quite rightly to the idea of a university, which suggests a universal or a large vision of, of how things fit together, not just knowing a very specialised area. And the word humanities suggests, you know, the coming to understand who we are and what our lives are for. There can't be anything more important than that in an education. So just having STEM subjects as the focus of one's education is not really, in my view, an education at all. An education is about the growing of the human soul and spirit as well as teaching one information. They can't just be teaching information. That That's a sort of machine model of what a human being is. And there's so much more to us than that, which includes growing the imagination. But it's also very important. I don't want anyone to run away with a, a mistaken idea of what I'm saying here. It also demands Discipline. It demands self-discipline and learning at an early age to be able to work on a project. Now, you said how to enjoy it. And one of our mistaken ideas nowadays is, oh, we can make this more enjoyable by taking all the discipline out of it. But this is false. <laughs> a lot of satisfaction is achieved only when you 
have a certain level of acquaintance and expertise, which has to be to begin with, certainly a, a degree of hard work. And to begin with, you may not know exactly why you are applying yourself to this, which is why it's important to begin it quite young, because when you're older, you're more impatient of knowing what I'm doing has this result. Whereas when you're young, you sort of say, okay, I'll learn this thing. I, I enjoy learning things. The more I learn about something, the more fun it is. So I think a combination of not patronizing young people and thinking they can't do difficult things. In fact, giving them challenges. I mean, challenging people is what is exciting. As an adult, a lot of people find their jobs so unchallenging that they take on sports that are highly challenging, or in their spare time, they do puzzles that will challenge their mind. But there's not enough that is challenging there. But challenging is itself a stimulus to the imagination and gives one great fun and pleasure in the acquisition of an understanding. So it's that broad, broad picture that needs to be there. And within it, of course, you can specialise. Everyone needs to specialise at a certain stage and you may have to spend a lot of your time on, say, mathematics and science. That's absolutely wonderful. But you must also have, at the same time, never have given up <clears throat> broadening your understanding of history, philosophy and the things that orientate us in life. Oh, yes. I definitely don't want to be one for saying uh, we shouldn't challenge each other because I believe that learning is fun. But I feel blessed and I, I would love for you to share some of your inspiring teachers. I feel blessed. I always found learning fun. There was a sense of play. And so I'm very interested in some of those alternative learning models like the Steiner schools or whatever, where there could be a physical yeah. activity, but it's not at the polar opposite of the intellectual. It's all bound up because I think happy children are, of course, able to learn better and and one thing that I think is also we learn so much more I believe when we, we there's this pleasure of making like we have a relationship of something we made out of this it's not knowledge just for but for rote learning absolutely and thank you for mentioning Steiner schools which I have no experience of them myself, but from what I understand of them and from experiences of others who've been through them seem to me very valuable. And of course, uh, Rudolf Steiner was trying to put into practice the philosophy of Goethe, who I think was not only one of the great poets, dramatists and philosophers of the last thousand years in Europe, but was also a great statesman and a scientist who did what I think scientists should do, which is to be empirical, to look at what there is there and ask difficult questions about it. Some of the answers he came to would not accord with those that modern science prefers, but I think they need perhaps to, to think more about those, those uh, thoughts of, of Goethe's. But in any case... Yes, I, I, my education, I suppose I was very lucky that I lived in an era when professionals were allowed to be professionals and they weren't micromanaged by bureaucrats and administrators who were uh, evaluating them and seeing whether they ticked the boxes all the time. The people who taught me would have been horrified by the thought that they could have the boxes ticked or that that's what they were supposed to do. And they'd rather have given up their job. They were often quite eccentric people, but were wonderful because they had enthusiasm. And I think that education, like everything, is an encounter. It's not a process that runs one way. It's a back and forth, and it's an encounter with something. And obviously in the, in the pupil-teacher relationship, 
uh, it's the pupil that's going to be learning most. That's okay. We don't have to be so worried about that. But on the other hand, the way to do it is not to think of it as funneling stuff into, that is the machine model, into this young person, facts, data, information, and then testing them on whether they've got it. And sometimes nowadays, God help us, opinions are, you know, if they have the wrong opinions or question the values that they're being taught. But education is about questioning. Therefore, the very dogmas that they're being taught as liberal dogmas should be themselves problematized as soon as possible. They should be trained to argue both ways about any matter, to see the good side and the bad. That was very much part of my education was being able to argue for a position and then turn it around and argue the other way. It's a very important training, I think. And having teachers who are not following um, some sort of map of where they must be, oh, it's, you know, Wednesday, the 27th of October, so we must be on page whatever of a book. That's the death of education. What we want is a teacher who comes in and says, you know, last night I was thinking about so-and-so and it led me to go back to reading this poem. And then, you know, and then the, the, the class takes up from there. And that transmission of a flame, a spark that comes from the, the one who is enthused to the, to the, the person who's, whose soul is being educated, led out, made to grow. That is how education, in my view, should work, not machine-like. Yes, not machine-like. And so, you know, you were speaking about the importance of the arts. You mentioned Goethe. You've been kind of speaking indirectly about the metaphysics of things. And I know that you're a great lover of the arts and music and poetry. So, you know, what mm. mythologies or collective stories do you return to, you know, as illuminations and metaphors of our humanity and consciousness? Well, I think mostly for me, the... I suppose that mostly I would say they're embodied in literature. So it's, for me, very particularly poetry uh, and the inexhaustible plays of Shakespeare, which produce incredibly powerful, unbelievably powerful metaphors and stories of humanity. Um, they seem to be able to deal with a completely, one and the same time, um, somebody who is completely themselves um, and, and not just a representative of a category and yet archetypal. And perhaps the second place that I would go is to the great mythologies uh, of both East and West. So in later life, I've, well, when I was in my teens, I already discovered that I was probably a Taoist or, or possibly a Zen Buddhist. So I, I have, over my lifetime, spent quite a lot of time acquainting myself with and and trying to open my, my mind to uh, the mythologies, not just of the West, but also of other cultures. And as you know, in the, in or perhaps you haven't come yet to chapter 21, but the, the beginning of the third part of the book, the metaphysics book, I, I talk about a, an amazing myth, which is one of the Onondagan people who, who are Iroquois Indians. And it's an extraordinary insight into what a human being is that anticipates the findings that I'm talking about in the first part of the book. So mythology is not a way of sort of taking you away from reality. It is once again, 
the exercise of your imagination in actually for the first time coming to see reality, to make contact with, to have that encounter that I talk about with the vibrancy of reality. So those are probably the main places that I go. I also am very interested in Jung. Although at university, well, when I was uh, beyond university really, but sort of training as a psychiatrist, the emphasis was very much on Freud. And I've always felt that Jung's imaginative understanding of the human mind is far deeper than the quasi-mechanistic I'm doing an injustice there to Freud, but the, he tends towards a mechanical model, a hydraulic 19th century model of how the mind, human mind works, where it seems to me that Jung has an immediate understanding of what one might say is the right hemisphere's ability to take metaphors and symbols and bring them to life. I think I, I I think there's a place for Freud, but I think definitely with Jung, it's more open. Well, of course, to the East, but also to a healing mind. Freud maybe yes. sometimes is seeing some the dangers of the world, and I want to believe we are not scarred. I want to I want to believe I want to believe I want to be on the side of Jung. I think, and to also be open yes. to the mystical. Yes, indeed. Yes. Well, let's hope that that that's something that we can make part of the way we bring up the young. I think probably they ought to be taught mindfulness in school from an early age. And indeed, I know uh, a couple of head teachers who have started that, even with very young children, uh, only sort of five or six, who are normally keen to be active and speaking and talking and running about. But the idea of actually sitting and being contained for a while, but it, it, it's difficult, but, but it can actually be very fruitful and productive. And it's something that they can build on as they grow and don't have to wait to, to reach a, a dysfunctional adulthood before they learn the values of silence and of not knowing and of openness. I think a, a part of that too is about them having a an imagine sometimes an imagination and not wanting to be told because I, I think we all know the limitations of our education models. So uh, it's just about seeing yeah. the talents that we all have. So I guess in closing, as you think about the future, and you've touched on this about what we can know and what we we cannot know, and what we can see and what we cannot see, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I'd like them to know and to feel more than to know how awe-inspiring the world is. I think once one loses a sense of awe and a sense of wonder, one's spiritually dead. And it doesn't matter how clever one is, a huge part of what it is to be a human being is missing. So I don't think education should be a question of dispelling the sense of wonder which comes naturally to children but should be building on that to create the enthusiasm to know more. And as they know more, to find the wonder deepens rather than ebbs away. So again, this requires education to be a much more um, living process than it is now, much less mechanistic, much less prescribed, um, above all, not prescribed by administrators, but one that is carried out by professionals who are enthusiastic, imaginative, and excited by what they're doing. If they have just those qualities, they will be communicated to their charges, if those charges have any 
any spark in them. And I believe that at some level we all must have that spark. So that's what I would really hope. And I would wish that it was involved with creative things as well as technical things. The technical things were important. And even in learning creative things such as how to paint, how to draw, how to write a story, you, you still need to have certain techniques, but it's always bringing them back to the, the, the imaginative part and allowing the imaginative part to go back and inform the, the bits that are more routine and everyday, so that there is this constant back and forth, which you could see as the left hemisphere helping to inform the actions which come deeply from the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere is not calling the shots, as it were. It's not in control. It should never be the one that makes the big decisions, but it is a very valuable servant to the master, which is the right hemisphere, that has the broader vision and the greater vision. If we could bring that into reality, and I know places where this is happening, indeed there's an important new educational movement in Cambridge, of which I'm honoured to be a, a patron of that, which is exactly aiming at doing this very thing. That's wonderful to know. And I would say if we could bring you, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, into classrooms all over, I think that that would help rekindle the sense of wonder in places where it is dwindling. So thank you, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, for sharing your insights into consciousness, perception, creativity, intuition, the nature of time, space, sacred, and metaphysics. By helping us understand our minds and its limitations, we can lead lives of greater purpose and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Well, thank you very much, Mia. It's been lovely to talk with you. The creative process is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Michael Collins, with participation from collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Michael Collins. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Higginborn. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andalus and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.